Welcome. You're listening to Participatory Action Research, Feminist Trailblazers and Good Troublemakers. I'm Patricia McGuire. I'm a longtime advocate of feminist-informed participatory action research and teacher action research. My co-host today is Jessica Adi. Hi everyone, uh, my name's Jess and I'm a PhD student at the University of East London Centre for Migration, Refugee and Belonging and I'm passionate about critical and feminist informed participatory action research. And our guest today is Renu Khanna and before introducing Renu, I want to tell you a little bit about this series. Our intention is to amplify the contributions of early feminist and women trailblazers in PAR We're going to talk about their work, their struggles, and their successes, bringing feminist values and ways of being to participatory action research. And hopefully together, then all of us can revision a participatory action research that's deeply informed by intersectional feminisms. I mean, after all, given its liberatory and transformative intentions, without feminisms, what would PAR liberate us from and transform us into? So today it's our pleasure to welcome Renu Khanna, a feminist women's health and rights activist. And I'm gonna tell you a little bit about her career. Renu is a trailblazer in participatory action research, particularly in women's health. In the early eighties, she began using PAR as part of her broader work with the social action for rural and tribal inhabitants of India or Sarthi. Its overall purpose was to try to give women a meaningful voice in their own healthcare. They did groundbreaking work in gynecological and psychological health related to gender-based violence. For example, they incorporated traditional health practices and modern allopathic health practices. And to do that, they did some really innovative work. They trained pre-literate women health workers who became known as the barefoot gynecologists and they provided gynecological services for tribal women. So Renu is one of the co-founders of the Society for Health Alternatives in Badadora, India. She's worked mobilizing traditionally marginalized groups in the tribal areas of Gujarat, the urban poor, and subsequently on health issues of sexual minorities, people living with disabilities and adolescents. So she has over 40 years of experience as a trainer, an action researcher, an evaluator, and a policy analyst in India. She's on governing boards and steering committees of national and international organizations. She's a joint national convener of the People's Health Movement of India and a founding member of Common Health Coalition of Maternal Neonatal Health and Safe Abortion. And finally, she's part of a coalition of feminist evaluators who are promoting gender transformative research and evaluation. And as we go through the podcast today, she's going to tell us about what this gender transformative research means, how that works. So Renu, welcome. We're really thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here with both of you. Jess is going to get us started. Yeah, it's great to be here with you both as well. Renu, your first position in 1977, I believe, was with the Voluntary Health Association and you were addressing kind of management issues faced by the rural hospitals and health centres. Could you tell us a little bit about that project and how it kind of informed your developing beliefs around participation, participatory projects and, and participatory research in general? Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to remember my own history. 
40 years is a very long time. So I was uh, very young, straight out of a management school. This was my first job. And I was part of a consulting group to advise rural hospitals on modern management practices. How could we incorporate management systems and processes to these hospitals located in remote rural areas and catering to the country's rural poor. Our team leader was a Catholic sister, and she was incidentally the first PhD in the country in hospital management. And it is from her that I've learned about participatory approaches. What I lacked in credibility as a very young woman, you know, thrown into the throes of advising very senior people on how to manage their hospitals, I made up by sharing what I knew about management and drawing out solutions from those hospital teams. I learned about consensus building from Sister Carol and the teams, the people in the hospitals own the solutions. I watched her and I learned from her about trusting first myself and trusting group processes. I don't have all the answers, Best solutions come from affected communities, the affected people. And what I learned was that my role is to build a safe space, help them to reflect, facilitate open discussions. And this, I feel, is the essence of participatory approaches. And this is a lesson that I've been practicing all of these years, 40 long years. And uh, it has stood me in very good stead. Thank you. That's such an interesting insight into how you got into participatory participation and participatory projects. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the work that you did in the early 80s with working class women who, who kind of introduced you or taught you about feminisms. So this was uh, really very, very interesting. After my eight years in uh, Voluntary Health Association of India, where one of the things that I learned was that health is a very low priority for the rural poor. What is important for them is livelihoods, earning their daily wage and feeding their families. And I was a bit disenchanted with the work that I was doing in management consulting in the healthcare domain. And at that time, because of my experience and my degree, I was invited by an urban women's collective from central India, a city called Jabalpur. And uh, this women's collective was making spices and marketing these spices. And the person who was coordinating this group and helping them felt that I may have something to offer. So I went across to, you know, traveled across the country into this city, town it was in central India, and I met these women. And uh, meeting these women is actually the most transforming experience of my life. Here was this group of urban poor women struggling, but with smiles on their faces and such a spirit of collectiveness and solidarity. You know, the whole day I was with them and in the evening, the group leader invited me to her home. And uh, her home was in a very poor neighborhood. 
it was barely structure. I mean, it was so rudimentary. And uh, as we approached her house, I saw a bed outside her little uh, dwelling. And on that bed was this man, emaciated and, you know, sick. And she introduced me to her. She said, he's my husband and he is a tuberculosis patient, long-time tuberculosis patient. I spent that evening with them. We ate together. And I was just so moved. I was so moved by the courage of this woman, by her cheerfulness, about her dedication to the work that she was doing with this collective of equally poor women and uh, the way she was looking after her husband and her family. So I spent the next week with this group and every day my admiration for them uh, increased. And I think that one week that I spent with them was the beginning of my commitment to women's issues, women's empowerment, economic empowerment, collective action. I didn't have the words at that time. I didn't have the language, but I think this was my introduction to feminism. Since then, I have been working very, very consciously with women with disenfranchised, marginalized women on issues that are important for them and trying to be of support to them. You said that when you first started working with these women, that they weren't really interested in in health issues because their economic livelihood issues were much more critical. Now, is that what led you to co-found the Society for Health Alternatives? Tell us about that sort of shift of where you you very specifically then started working with the Society for Health Alternatives. And I know you did some very innovative work where you started working with women who were walking very long distances to collect wood for cooking. So you introduced them to um, smokeless stoves And then that evolved into essentially feminist-inspired maternal health or the barefoot gynecologist. So tell us how all that came together. I think while I got engaged in sectors other than health, I also started owning my affiliations to health. The only thing is that I started seeing health not just as a physical issue, not only to do with body, but also to do with emotional, social health, and uh, also started realizing the structural factors in health. All of this now, you know, in subsequent years has been, for instance, articulated by WHO as social determinants and structural determinants of health. But when we founded SEHEJ, Society for Health Alternatives, what we wanted to do was not just look at health, physical health, but uh, trace back the roots of physical health to psychological stress-related factors, to economic and political factors, and people's position in society. So that was the basis of the founding of uh, Society for Health Alternatives. 
at that time, as I was saying, you know, with my management degree, which I actually discounted, but people thought that, you know, having an MBA degree after your name gives you a lot of credibility and gives you a lot of power. And so I was being called to different places. And one of the organizations where I was called was this organization, Sarthi which uh, was working in a tribal area, very, very resourceful area. And uh, when I went there, again, some of these images remain in your mind. So my first visit to Sarthi was, you know, I saw these denuded hills. It's a very rolling landscape, tribal areas. They have this hilly sort of terrain. And so I saw denuded, depleted hillocks. And I saw women in groups and clusters digging away. There was nothing to dig. And we stopped the vehicle and we asked them, what is it that you're doing? And they said, and this was a time when there was a very, very severe drought in Western India. The forests were depleted. There was no firewood for them to cook food. And what they were doing was that they were digging roots roots of trees which had been felled or bushes and uh, that was going to be their fuel to cook that evening's meal. Scarcity of resources, basic resources in that area just struck me and was driven home. And this friend of mine was an architect who had been actually dealing with and helping people in other areas, women in other parts of the country to make these improved cook stoves, as they were called, smokeless chulas. So this organization then asked us to come and make these chulas where women would not have to expend so much of fuel wood. And these chulas or these stoves uh, would take the smoke out of the house. So they were energy efficient uh, cook stoves. And so we spent about two years training local women in principles of physics, how, you know, the wind sucks up the fire and how if you just light one stove, uh, but create a tunnel, you can actually put two pots on that stove and cook two things at the same time. So things like that. The principles of physics were demystified. All of this work, masonry work, this was all skilled masonry work. And this was done by men traditionally. So here we were teaching women to understand physics and to acquire skills that so far were only the privilege of men. And so we were doing something very, very radical and which we didn't really realize. But that's the way it emerged. And so these women became, uh, you know, these uh, Tula uh, technicians and they were, there was so much demand for them. They were able to earn money, you know, from uh, making these cook stoves in other villages. All of this was happening. And then uh, when these women were going into villages to make these stoves, other women started approaching them and uh, started speaking about their health issues. And so these women, you know, we had monthly meetings with these, this cadre of smokeless chula technicians, as we call them, chula mysteries. And in these monthly meetings, these women started speaking of health problems of these 
the rural women in these areas. And that gave birth to our community-based women's health program. And that's how it all started. What I'm really struck by it is that this work took time over a couple of years. And I think that's one thing for our listeners to think about how participatory action research projects evolve over time. And you created spaces where women could talk about one kind of issue. And as trust was built, they talked about other issues and the importance of creating kind of spaces and relationships where people have a voice, which I think is one of the the main premises really of PAR and feminism where those overlap. Absolutely. That's the most fundamental aspect of participatory engagement. It is not top-down. It evolves from the needs of, you know, the affected people. I mean, we didn't have any agenda. We were responding to what the local women were telling us. Our only agenda was to support them in their search for solutions. That's what it was. What I wanted to explore, I wondered if there was any pushback over time to the work that Sarthi or the Society of Health Alternatives was getting to your very openly and avowedly feminist view of women's health and health reform. Did you get pushback? And and if so, what was that like? Of course. I mean, you know, feminism is not a very easy word. It's not a very acceptable label. I think feminists end up threatening a lot of people. Uh, But in addition to the feminist pushback, there was pushback also from the biomedical community, the doctor's lobby, for instance, and also from those who don't accept human rights approaches. So pushbacks in the current context are plenty. But we do what we have to do. We change our strategy. Our work and mission are important to us and not the imperative of using labels like feminist or human rights activist. So we don't need to say feminist or human rights. We can be more explicit and use terms like equality, like dignity, like non-discrimination. And who's going to fight with these terms or with these values? So I think what we've learned to do is to be subversive in the way we do go about our business, in the way we go about our mission. I think it's so interesting and and, and the work that really changed and actually began to challenge kind of this the dominant paradigm of maternal health research, which I think usually discounted women's voices and experiences. Given that, why do you think that the Society for Health Alternatives using PAR in health research was able to reach kind of policy making arenas and influence both the local, but then later the national health system. The thing about health is that the dominant paradigms of health are so, so biomedical. The way medicine is taught is based on a very clinical paradigm, very biomedical. And that's why feminist approach to women's health is very different. Because what we emphasize is women's experience of their bodies and women's 
understanding of their own health, their cultural beliefs and practices. So this is how it is so different. I'll just give you an example. When we first started working with these uh, tribal women in this, as I was saying, very, very resource poor area, we asked them, how do you know that you're pregnant? And uh, the answer that we expected, I expected was that, you know, our menstruation stops, our period stops, and I know that I'm pregnant. And their answer was that when I can't see at night in the evenings, then I know I'm pregnant. And it took us a while to understand what that meant. It meant that their nutritional status was so depleted. They were so low on reserves of vitamin A that in pregnancy, the first sign that they recognized of their pregnancy was night blindness. And Western allopathic medicine, I mean, we were coming from the Western allopathic medicine paradigm. And it took us such a long time to figure this out. And uh, responses to women from that paradigm, if they did not take into account this reality of the depleted nutritional status, then it was so off the mark. All the treatment that the hospitals or the subcenters were providing, which was actually precious little at that time, was so off the mark because it was not looking at women in their context. So this was our first lesson in understanding women's cultural and contextual experiences. Now, quality of care in allopathic medicine, you know, in the discourse is defined by technical care, by administrative, you know, systems and things like that. And there's one little part of it which says uh, patient satisfaction. If all these four elements are there, there's somebody called Judith Bruce who's done some remarkable work on quality of care frameworks. And this is what they talk about. Now, we explored with the women, what kind of maternal health care would they want? What would be their concept of very good, excellent maternal health care? And the responses that came up were a mosquito net, food served in the hospital, gentleness and caring at the time of labor. I would love to have somebody with me in the labor room when I'm in labor. Now, many of these things at that time, you know, in the 90s, these did not figure in the concept of quality of care. So we started emphasizing that women's perspectives of quality of care are very important and they will be contextual. This was a malaria endemic area. So there were lots of mosquitoes and the primacy that the women gave to a mosquito net is not something that the health system, you know, the standard one-size-fits-all approach will have. So using their voices and testimonies and their concepts, uh, we highlighted and amplified these through our engagement with feminist movements, both nationally and globally. So that is what we do. We engage with local communities, affected groups, and give them that space to articulate their concerns, their perspectives, and use their voices through our engagement and our very, very active, you know, collaboration 
and the solidarity that we built up over the years with movements, the people's health movement, with the feminist health movement, with the social accountability community, the feminist evaluators community, all of these. And we transmit voices of affected groups to policy-making arenas, both nationally and globally. I think it's powerful, though, what you're talking about is how it happens over time and that you stayed engaged with women's health, but that you became part of other coalitions, other networks. So tell us about that, about how over time you became part of feminist coalition that started using and promoting these participatory evaluation of health programs. Okay, so becoming part of this feminist coalition was very recent. And uh, what had happened was that as I was developing, you know, my skills as a facilitator and trainer, and also resultantly uh, my reputation as a facilitator and trainer, and as a management student, I was supposed to know about monitoring and evaluation. So I was invited by women's empowerment organizations to come and do evaluations of their programs. And because, as I told you, I'd internalized all of this, you know, participation and participatory methods so much, it all came very, very naturally to me. And so I made these evaluations into participatory self and collective reflection workshops. I remember the first time that I did this, was in the late 80s or early 90s. And uh, this was a rural women's empowerment program. So I asked them to draw. I said, draw a picture of how your life was before this program and draw another picture of how your life is today. And there were, you know, sheets of paper and there were crayons and colors in the room. And they came up with these drawings, which were absolutely mind-blowing. Again, these are so vividly etched in my brain. So one of this, uh, one woman had drawn this picture of a parrot in a cage as a free program status. And another picture of a parrot flying with its wings flapping. And that was so amazing for me and so gratifying. You know, so these kinds of things were, I was doing. And it's only later that I learned that some of these have been codified into participatory rural appraisal or participatory learning approaches, you know, PRA techniques and PLA and, you know, all of that. I had been doing all of this very, very intuitively. So over years, I kept doing these sort of evaluations. For example, I did one adolescent girls health program evaluation, one midwifery program, a government reproductive and child health program evaluation. Uh, so while I learned so much about the issue at hand, I realized that my basic approach to these evaluations was to create spaces for whoever within quotes, the beneficiaries or the subjects or whatever you want to call them, to evaluate the program themselves. What change has it resulted in? What could have been done better? What did not work? That sort of thing. 
And uh, I had other friends in the feminist movement, somebody working on education, somebody working in livelihoods. And uh, these were feminist friends. So one of them said, why don't we get together and write up our experiences on the evaluations that we've been doing in our different sectors? This was the first initiative, a group of us, there were about eight, nine of us who got together and wrote up our experiences, which then got published in a special journal, Indian Journal of Gender Studies. And it came out as a special issue of that journal was on uh, feminist evaluations. So that group then stayed together and we were funded by IDRC and Ford Foundation. And the anchoring organization was a feminist organization called the Institute for Social Studies Trust. And uh, that's how this community has actually grown. And I have to say that. I did not know anything about theory of evaluation until I joined this group. You know, because some of them were uh, professional evaluators, feminists who were evaluators. And it is from them that I learned about theories of evaluation and, uh, you know, different schools. How does gender transformative evaluation and research differ from some of those different theories that you measured? Maybe you could just break it down to us, what makes something gender transformative? What makes an evaluative process gender transformative? So for this, I would first have to see what is gender. And then I would have to describe to you what is gender transformative approaches. So gender to me is a continuum beyond the binaries of the biological male and female, a continuum that accommodates people of diverse sexual orientations, gender identities and expressions. So gender in common parlance in my country and I think in many places globally gets reduced to women. But it's not only about women and it's not only about women and men. It has to go beyond that. Uh, so that is point number one. Now, what does gender transformation mean to me? And gender transformation to me means changing for the better gender norms, accepted gender roles, unequal power relations, moving away from gender stereotypes, moving towards gender equality. So gender transformative research, what does that do? So again, like when you talk about gendered research, generally it gets reduced to sex disaggregated data to compare male and female differences in, let's say, if you're talking about health, anemia, lifespans, mortality. But gender transformative research goes beyond just analyzing sex disaggregated data to look at how gender roles, division of labor, differential access to and control over resources affect gender power relations which impact on health status of different groups. And gender transformative evaluations, I think, examine how gender was integrated into health systems as well as into health programming to result in gender transformation. For example, were health budget allocations increased to develop more women leaders within the health system? 
were human resources policies changed to accommodate women's reproductive needs or towards positive discrimination towards people of the soji groups how did health program strategies attempt to change community norms and i'll give you an example here menstrual health and hygiene programs these days everybody's talking about adolescent health means menstrual health and hygiene so how is this issue framed is it simply a water and sanitation and hygiene issue or is it framed as a dignity issue does it attempt to dismantle harmful practices and stigma around menstruation or does it not how does it actually involve adolescents and young women in designing implementing monitoring and evaluating the program a gender transformative evaluation would look at all of these in terms of your gender transformative evaluation and research i was wondering because it's transforming not only gender norms for women and lgbtq mm. people but i wondered if you could talk about any projects you evaluated where the projects were transforming cis men's performance of masculinity yeah so you know i mean i don't even know to uh, need to go to evaluations our own work in the low income neighborhoods in gujarat with young boys over the years has revealed some very powerful results and i can give you a few examples of those many years ago i think it must have been 10 years ago we did a, a weekend retreat with boys in which we facilitated them to write their own life stories from masculinity's perspective and the stories of these um, 15 18 boys were then written up and compiled into a book and uh, on october 2nd which is mahatma gandhi's birthday we did a launch of this little book it was a public ceremony and we asked the boys who had contributed their life stories to speak about what mahatma gandhi's masculinity meant for them and this was such a powerful rendition of their understanding one of the boys said that what he learned from mahatma gandhi's masculinity was non violence what he learned from mahatma gandhi's um masculinity was speaking truth to power don't close your eyes don't close your ears let your tongue speak out when you see injustice anywhere so these were so you know the way they had internalized mahatma gandhi's masculinity and i thought this was it was a very moving exposition of transformative masculinities this was one such example the other example that i want to give you is one of our young peer leaders from these low income neighborhoods grew up and became a young man and he's now the father of two little girls and we were actually celebrating our 35th anniversary of sage and it was a public function and this young man came up to you know on the stage and gave a public account of the kind of pressures 
that he faces in this patriarchal society in his within his own family because he has two daughters and he is pressurized by family members to force his wife to undergo more pregnancies and to not just more pregnancies but also sex determination and sex selection so that they give birth to a baby boy and uh, so he stood there and he said that how being with sahaj and learning about gender equality and gender justice he has you know not just developed the perspective but also the courage to hold off his family and to actually dialogue with them and explain to them that daughters for him are as important as sons would be and he sees no difference between daughters and sons and i thought this again was individual personal change which goes beyond individuals to influence their families and their communities their cultural norms and i think this is the beginning of a journey of actually social change so these sort of examples these are dramatic examples but these sort of examples are everyday examples in our community work so we see this happening as a result of the gender sensitization sessions and the education that my colleagues and my team members conduct in the community with these young people and also their families it's not just only with the young people well those are very powerful examples and i think it will help flesh out for our listeners that when you speak about gender transformation it's for people across the range of gender identities and um sexual identity that it isn't just for women so often i think in projects about gender it gets truncated to only mean women's gender one of the most challenging parts of participatory action research is getting the participatory piece and you described i think the various methods approaches values around participation and that takes time over time it's not a compressed short approach to research and i think those are really helpful things that you've highlighted for our listeners so to bring some of this together what are some of your own feminist values and ways of being that have informed your approach to research to evaluation and i think the society for alternatives to health inclusion i think of the most marginalized groups within a context is very important their participation and their substantive participation not tokenistic participation their voice how are power relations changing their subjective experiences creativity joy empowerment you know i think all of these are extremely fundamental core central to the notion of feminist evaluation data evidence research is how hierarchies are created for instance quantitative data is the data which is considered to be the most legitimate qualitative is fuzzy duddy you know it's sort of soft data within quotes 
And feminists, uh, many of us, uh, while we talk about testimonies and stories and narratives, we are trying to highlight the importance of qualitative data. But one of the things that I have learned over time is that we as women, as feminist uh, activists, also need to learn to master quantitative data and quantitative paradigms because that is what will contribute to our empowerment. And uh, so this is in one way turning tables on uh, some of my earlier beliefs. And I think that what is important is a combination of quantitative and qualitative when we are talking about research. So while we are sort of debunking the RCT, the randomized control trial as a gold standard paradigm and uh, trying to create legitimacy for stories, testimonies, techniques like photo voices, videography. These are participatory techniques. I think that we also need to shun our resistance to quantitative paradigms and embrace those. Yeah, I'm really, I'm so interested to see how your your work has shifted over the past couple of years, of course, with the global pandemic. I mean, what does power in health research look like or what has it looked like for you and your organisation over the past couple of years? We work with adolescents and we work with adolescents of different social groups, very poor working class adolescent, uh, you know, families, uh, their young people, and also uh, sexual minority groups. So in the COVID period, uh, some of these adolescent peer leaders actually did local inquiries to find out who are the neediest families in their neighbourhoods who need the relief, nutrition, food, whose livelihoods have been most affected and they need livelihood support. So my point is that it is these local people who know their context and who know their neighbourhood who can do the most credible sort of inquiries and most uh, accurate inquiries. So some of this was done. The LGBTQI group, Again, there was so much of hunger and deprivation and they don't have ration cards, identity cards, government cards, which would entitle them to the free ration distribution. So they did a survey of people who did not have these identity cards and made a list and went to the collector and were able to demand, you know, that these uh, rations and this relief be given to them. So it's internal, it's all internal. And uh, I think this is participatory research uh, rooted in action because it is resulting in strategies and interventions which are going to improve their situation. And going beyond this, I mean, this is a very micro experience. I have also recently been doing a three country study in South Asia to document the response to COVID from a gender perspective. And this again is something that I found that it's the local groups, you know, the state could not reach 
there were so many structural barriers that uh, they couldn't re reach these remote areas. And it was the local groups who responded. They did assessments, rapid assessments of the situation that was existing and was able to produce reports and publicize their findings and mobilize support for these local contexts. So all of this has been happening in the COVID period, very powerfully. And in fact, this has been a major learning for us, that there has to be close coordination between local community-based organizations and civil society organizations and district level and subnational administration government authorities. And if that happens, then there will be effective emergency response. Recently, there's been a lot of discourse in international development and kind of global health fields around the need to, and I put in quotations, decolonize research methodologies uh, and and the way these these kind of big systems like international development and global health work more generally. Do you think community-based power has a role in addressing some of the power and knowledge asymmetries that we see surfacing in these fields? Absolutely. I think some of the examples that I just gave of this uh, three-country COVID response uh, research is an example of that. And also, uh, you know, the example of Sahid's uh, adolescent peer leaders doing surveys of the most needy people in their communities. I mean, they are the ones who have the knowledge. They are the ones who have the credibility, the trust of their communities. So absolutely, as I was saying, 40 years of my experience, and I, I feel that in terms of what I have learned, I think I owe most of my learning to local knowledge, to people who are repositories of this knowledge. We didn't talk about one other very significant thing which we did. This is uh, the Shodhini work. Shodhini is a woman researcher. This was feminist research on women's knowledge of their bodies and traditional remedies, local traditional remedies, which they use for their gynec problems. This had never been done earlier. Ayurveda or the you know, local health practitioners are all male. Ayurveda is a very patriarchal system of knowledge. So this happened in nine places across the country, nine different locations across the length and breadth of India. And we found amazing synchronicity and uh, convergence on some of the remedies that the women were using for the same symptoms. And it was just so amazing. This actually came out as a book published by Kali for Women. It's called Touch Me, Touch Me Not, Women, Healing and Plants. This was written way back in the 1991 or 92. What I'm saying is we as educated middle-class women who have the privilege of our education and class, we learned so much from going into the forests with these local women and they would show us the plant and they would, you know, I mean, there's so many stories around this. They would not 
name the plant and we would say why not and they said the magic will go the power will go and so we could photograph the plant and bring it back to the botany department and get them to identify it and you know all of that so we learned so much and 80% of the remedies that the women were using uh, we ran it through three filters one was botany and uh, you know the local botanist in the university was able to say 80% of them had the properties that the women were using them for we ran it through ayurveda same result there there were very few remedies or practices that they were doing which were actually harmful and some of them were again their roots are in patriarchy something like beating a woman like if she is expressing what they call hysteria then they will beat her the local spiritual healer will say i'm driving out the demons so those sort of things we said are absolutely no no because these are human rights violations but 80% even more than that of the things that you're doing are what is codified in so called modern science so what i'm saying is this is decolonization this is local knowledge which is being elevated to and i think this is what needs to be done more and more being elevated to knowledge you know i mean being codified as knowledge and not just being left as local knowledge it deserves a status of science as much as science what else would you like to say to our listeners about why attention to inclusion of intersectional feminist values matters to today's action research why does this combination this um coming together why does it matter to today's action researchers so i think because of so many things one is i think intersectional feminism recognizes that women are not a single class and i think that is really important you know one of the things that uh, again uh, i go back to 20 30 years ago is uh, how little we knew about lgbtqi issues who are we to research on their issues you know by we i mean cis people the best research that can be done it can be done internally you know this is again one little thing that we did here in uh, vadodara city uh, there is an lgbtqi group and uh, we supported them you know there was training given and there was documentation hand holding and all of that and we encouraged them to do the research on their own issues so again i mean if you look at it from the perspective of intersectionality it is empowering groups who are marginalized to document their own experiences to put out their own findings so what does actually feminism add to participatory action research i think that becomes a question what i learned from feminism and participatory action research is the layering is not homogenizing you know is privileging the subaltern for instance so some of these are important for me this sensibility adds another layer 
to the sanitized participatory action research, the unnuanced techniques and tools. I think there's a deeper philosophy and how do we give life to that philosophy is what I have learned through feminist practice. I just think it's such a fantastic conversation to hear just the whole longevity of PAR and how you've worked in so many different spaces and brought it into so many different spaces. I think your final comment also is one of the most powerful and one of the concerns I've had in, in my 35 or so years working is that participatory research not be disconnected from its radical roots, you know, that it stay connected to the, the deep philosophical, theoretical beliefs about dignity and people's right to have a voice and that doing that takes time and relationships across time. It's not a quick in out, it takes time. Well, unfortunately we have to wrap it up and I wanna thank you, Renu, for sharing with us the whole arc of your journey, your movement through participatory training, participatory evaluation, participatory research to what is really, I think particularly groundbreaking now is your approach to gender transformative evaluation. I think that's something new for our listeners to hear about. I want to thank our co-hosts, Jessica. Uh, you want to learn more about her work using digital and participatory research methods with youth in educational emergency settings. Jess, give us your website. My website is www.com jessoddy.com. And a huge thank you to our listeners. Please help us amplify this podcast, share the link with your colleagues, your networks, give us a shout out on social media. If you have any comments or questions, email me at mcguirep at wnmu.edu. And that's it for this episode of Participatory Action Research, Feminist Trailblazers and Good Troublemakers. Now go and make some good trouble on your own. All right, thank you, listeners.